Wow, what a morning to worship the Lord. Let's see. Have you ever received a book either as a gift or purchased a book through a recommendation only to put it on your bookshelf and forget about it? Okay, based on the chuckling, I'm not alone. I, I have to admit that I do this probably more often than I'd like. Um, I've said it before that I, I'm not a strong reader. I, I, I don't read a lot of books. Uh, I'm atypical in that sense when it comes to being a pastor. Uh, I don't have a large library. In fact, when I uh, first got moved into my office here, there, I think there were like four to six different bookcases, and I told Josh, I was like, I don't need the, that many. <laughs> I won't need that many. <laughs> I just, I'm just not a big-time reader. Um, now, that being said, I like the idea of books, and therefore I collect books. As my wife is nodding her head, I collect books, and I like the idea of books, Far more than I actually get around to reading books, um, but it is something that uh, I'm trying to be a little bit more intentional about. Um, the last couple weeks, this scenario happened where I realized that I had been given a book as a gift that kind of went on my bookshelf for a while. Um, and just in the last couple weeks, I just felt like it was time to read a book. It was time to read something for my soul and, and to, to be uplifting to me. And so I went over to my bookcase, and, and admittedly, there's a lot of books there that I have not yet read that, uh, are, that fit in this category. And I came across this book uh, that is written by a good friend of mine, a uh, f- um, previous pastor of mine, uh, John Kitchen. Um, who authors several books, but uh, he gave me this when I served alongside of him at my previous location as a gift to me, and ashamedly, it went on my bookcase, and I never got around to it. But I believe that the Lord has timing for things like that, and uh, the timing of this is on point. I praise the Lord for that. I want to share, with permission from him, uh, to share I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the prologue to you this morning because it goes hand in hand with kind of where we're going in the text this morning. So this is uh, author John Kitchen from his book, He is Able. The prologue states, My dilemma. May I be candid? I figure we might as well be honest right up front. I can't do it. I can't. I can't be the man I ought to be. I can't be the man people expect me to be. I can't be the man I want to be. I can't be the man my family deserves. I can't do it. I can't be strong enough. I can't be wise enough or smart enough. I can't know enough, study enough, read widely enough, be intelligent enough. I can't be holy, compassionate, or hopeful I can't be faithful, humble, gentle, loving, or joyful. I can't be peaceful, patient, good, or self-controlled. I can't stop. I can't even start. I can't understand it, figure it out, trace it out, or search it out. I can't love my wife as Christ loved the church. I can't make my children love God. I can't make them want 
God. I can't make them walk with God. I can't overcome the world. I can't control my own sinful impulses. I can't rein in my thoughts, corral my anxieties, or wrestle my worries into submission. I can't answer your questions. I can't even answer my questions. I can't keep it up, stay the course, or win the day. I can't find the path. I can't walk the path even if I do find it. I can't hang on. I can't keep going. I can't persevere to the end. I can't figure it out, reason it through, or find my way. I can't prolong my life. I can't guarantee myself another heartbeat, assure myself of another breath, or sustain my brain waves another second. I can't pay God back. I can't pay God off. I can't remove my sins, pay for my sins, or destroy my sins. I can't change my body, my face, or my hair, or in his case, lack thereof. I can't change my history. I can't change my family. I can't make my life count, discover my destiny, make a name, or leave a legacy. I can't discover, change, or attain my destiny. I can't rise above, overcome, or triumph. I can't be the son I ought to be. I can't be the brother I ought to be, the nephew I ought to be, the uncle I ought to be. I can't be the son-in-law or brother-in-law I ought to be. I can't be what I want to be. I can't be what I ought to be. I can't be what I must be. I can't justify my own existence. I guess what I'm trying to tell you is this. I can't. And quite frankly, it makes me angry. I must, but I can't. And I'm mad about it. I'm angry with myself. What's the matter with me? I'm angry at anyone or anything that exposes my inability get out of my face. Yet, I must. The obligation itself exposes my powerlessness and my pride. Part one, I can't, but God can. As I picked this off my bookshelf in the last couple weeks and I read that, I broke down in my office because of how deeply those truths and those statements resonated within me. As I, as I was in agreement with the statements of, I can't. We live in a culture today that demands that, yes, we can. It expects that we can and even promises that we can. But as I read these statements, like I said, I realized, no, I can't. And I don't think I'm supposed to either. There is a freeing truth found in these words, freedom from the trap of the world, and yes, even the ministry world, where the unspoken expectations that pastors feel, where we must remind ourselves that we can't, but he can. Paul has something to say about that, too, this morning. So I'm going to encourage you to find your Bibles. And open them to Galatians chapter 1, where we're going to continue our study together. If you don't have your own Bible, I encourage you to find one around the room. They're in the chairs around you. And while you, we have God's word open, let us pray. 
Lord, I just, uh, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to serve you in this way, to honor you in your word. Lord, I thank you for the reminder that we can't, but you can. Lord, I pray that uh, this morning as we continue to worship you in all that we do and continue to worship you in your word, that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would minister to our souls through the truth of your word. Lord, and I pray that anyone wrestling and, and, and resonating with those statements would find them in good company this morning. Lord Jesus, we need you because you are more than capable for all of those statements. So Lord, we, we ask that you would lead our time in the word this morning, that you would be glorified through the teaching of your word this morning, and that you, by your Holy Spirit, would transform us from the inside out through your, through your word. So Jesus, do what only you can do. It's in your name I pray. Amen. There is something about serving in the role of a pastor that uh, as I spend time with other pastors and fellowship and just talk about the experience of what it's like to shepherd, whether it's youth pastor, senior pastor, associate pastor, whatever the case may be, there is a weightiness to it. There is a whether they're spoken expectations or unspoken expectations that pastors feel. And like I said earlier, we live in a culture today where the church and pastors are being squeezed by these un unspoken and often spoken expectations. To show you what I mean, there's actually a cartoon strip that I'd like to share with you. And hopefully you can read it. You see on one side of the road, there's a pastor with a, with a frown on his face standing by his church sign that says, Sermon Series, What God Has Said. And then on the other side of the road, there's another pastor with a smug look on his face with uh, everybody flocking to his church that says, Sermon Series, What You Would Rather Hear. And there, we live in a day today where sadly, this is the pressure that pastors feel. Where pastors feel like they have to leave God's truth in order to please the masses, in order to get butts in the seats. That old uh, butts and uh, building, building bucks and butts, right? That's the old acronym of, you know, getting butts in the seats and, and maintaining the building and, and bringing in the bucks. That's the goal of success. Well, based on that model, the guy on the right's got the winning solution here. But based in the kingdom and eternity, the guy on the left knows he's on the winning side, and that's why he's sad. Not because there aren't butts in the seats and bucks coming in, but the fact that there are souls leaving truth for what they'd rather hear instead. Paul knows something about this, as we're going to find out here in chapter 1 of Galatians, 
starting in verse 10. I'm going to read from my English Standard Version. You can follow along in yours. Verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Caiaphas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is kind of broken up into two sections, this, this part. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to address verse 10 and get a truth out of it. And it, was, it was really hard in my study last week to whether it fit with last week's message or with, whether it fit in this week's message. And ultimately, it made its way to this week. So it does, it does, it's kind of a transitional thing. So it does feel a little bit weird, but just go with me here. He starts in verse 10. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? The word here for approval in the Greek is patho, which means persuade, trust, obey, or favor. In the, in the King James Version or the New King James Version, it might be read, am I uh, trying to persuade man or persuade God? Uh, it's translated that way. And in the different translations that I looked at, too, it looked like uh, the King James and the New King James were the only translations that translated it as persuade. Um, most of the other translations use some form of approval, favor, um, gaining the trust of, or, or, you know, things of that nature. Within the context that it's being written, it, I think it makes the most sense the way it's written in the ESV here for, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? The second word in this statement in verse 10 here is the word please, which is aresco, which does mean to please, specifically to accommodate oneself to the opinions, desires, and interests of others. Paul says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please, to accommodate the opinions, desires, and interests of man? 
continues on in the second half. He says, if I were still trying to please by accommodating the, the opinions, desires, and interests of others, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's a powerful statement. This word servant here means doulos, that is the Greek word doulos, which literally means servant, slave, or bondservant. It can be used in any one of those three different ways. And the ESV, I read the ESV in the introduction of, the, of my study Bible, and they, they explain how they translate doulos into these different ways. They use the context of the passage to make the, the best translation here. Um, and so they went with servant here, would not be a servant of Christ, someone who serves Jesus. I want us to just read verse 10 and really wrestle with what Paul is saying. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now the context in this case, specifically, he just got done making the claim to the church that there is no other gospel than that of Jesus Christ, that Jesus alone saves. And so the statement is poignant to that because, it, did I use that right? Did I use that right? Yes, I'm looking at you because I use it and you go, you're not using that word right. Okay, it works. Okay. That's a little inside joke I just let you in on. I, I use words incorrectly a lot, and Amy will say, that word doesn't mean what you think it means. <laughs> English is hard. Uh, <laughs> sounded right in the moment. But Paul's making a statement. He says, there is no other gospel than that of Jesus Christ. And then he goes into verse 10. He's like, listen, I don't care if you like it or not. I'm not trying to win your approval. I'm trying to stay faithful to Jesus Christ. In Christ alone. I would, if I were trying to please man, then maybe I'd share some other kind of gospel with you. But I'm not, that's not what I'm going after. I'm going after truth. He says, if I were trying to please man, then I'm not serving Jesus. And I think there's a truth here that we need to be reminded of. It's not the job of a pastor to please mankind. It cannot be the motivation of a pastor to seek approval of man either. Now, let me be very clear in what I mean by this statement. It is okay for you to give words of affirmation to your pastor. It's okay for you to say, thank you for blessing me with the message this morning. It really blessed my soul. What cannot be true is that the pastor is seeking that. Because that will change his motivation, right? It's a good thing for when your pastor or any other teacher that you're sitting under blesses you with truth and it impacts you in a certain way for you to thank them for that and to encourage them in that. That's not a wrong thing. But it cannot be the, the motivation of a pastor to be seeking that approval of man. Because when a pastor begins trying to please man, 
they're no longer serving Jesus Christ. When a pastor leaves truth and is, is so focused on trying to accommodate everybody's desires and wishes, he's no longer serving as Christ wants him to serve. And this is a trap in the world we live in today. Now, Paul was an apostle. He was a teacher. He was a, you know, a, a pastor, for that matter. He was a shepherd of the church. But he was also a disciple of Jesus, right? So therefore, we can also make the distinction to replace pastor with follower of Jesus. It's not the job of a follower of Jesus to please man. It's, it cannot be the motivation of a follower of Jesus to seek approval of man either. And when a follower of Jesus begins trying to please man rather than Christ, they're no longer serving Jesus Christ. Paul makes it very clear in his word here that we must, 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 as followers of Jesus, hold fast to God's truth even if it's the unpopular thing to do. Because if we begin trying to please man, we no longer are serving Jesus, our King. This does not mean that we cannot show love and grace towards others. We must. However, we must stand firm on what God's word reveals, God's truth, and we must do so in grace and truth and love. Paul makes it very clear there in last week's message, there is no other gospel. Salvation is found in no one else other than Jesus Christ. Remember the, remember the context. There were these influencers coming into the church and saying, well, that's fine that you love Jesus, but you also have to become a Jew first. You have to be circumcised. You have to go through these extra hoops and Paul could have joined along with him. He was Jewish. He, he was, you know, a Jewish Pharisee for that matter, at, you know, at least from an education standpoint, and he could have agreed with them. He says, no, 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 no. God's truth is this, and I'm going to stand for it, whether it pleases man or not. And then we go into a defense. Remember the context. The church in Galatia was rebuked for quickly leaving the gospel of Jesus. The Judaizers were coming in with a false gospel, with this, this other gospel, this, this uh, teaching that and it, you, you're not just saved by Jesus. That's good that Jesus is your Savior, but you also must do these things. You must also become Jewish. You must also follow the Mosaic law. You must also become uh, circumcised if you were male. They were also speaking falsely about Paul himself and his character and how he got the gospel. And so he goes into a defense here. But what stood out to me is how he defends his claims. He does so with a testimony. And we're going to unpack that this morning. Verses 11 to 12, let's read that. For I would have you know, brothers and sisters for that matter, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He makes a claim 
that the gospel that he preached to them was not his own. It didn't come from him. It didn't come from any other man, any other human source. It came directly from a revelation from Jesus Christ himself. And if we read back into the story of Acts, uh, the book of Acts, where, you know, we see Paul, or in that case, in that point in time, Saul's encounter with Jesus Christ, we know this to be true. He says that I didn't receive this from man. I wasn't taught this gospel by man. Jesus himself directly gave me this gospel through revelation. The Greek word here for revelation is apocalypsis. Actually, the Y there is an ooh sound, apocalypsis. And it literally means a disclosure of truth or instruction concerning things before unknown. So when, when Paul says that Jesus Christ revealed the gospel to him, Paul was unaware of any, he was unaware of the gospel. He was unaware of it being taught. In fact, he was actively pursuing and hunting down believers that were claiming this. In that, in that point in time of his life, it was heresy to him. But Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus and reveals truth and knowledge that he otherwise had no, like, it was unknown. We have to be very careful because this type of revelation does not exist anymore. With the closing of Scripture, with the closing of Scripture, the canon of Scripture, God's revelation, apocalypsis, is closed because all that we need to know who he is has been revealed. There is no unknown there is no unknown knowledge like the Gnostics would have you, you know, were trying to influence the church. They were trying to say, wait, 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 there's still more to know. No, there isn't. God has made it fully revealed. His plan of salvation is fully revealed. His, his plan for humanity is fully revealed, and it's contained in God's word. It is complete. The revelation of God in this manner is closed. But wait a minute, God, wait a minute, pastor. You, you mean to tell me God doesn't make things known to us? What you're talking about is illumination. And this is a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who resides in you as a repentant believer in Jesus Christ. We know that we are filled with God himself, the Holy Spirit. And we are told that his job in your life is to convict you of sin, but also to teach us what God's word says. This is illumination. He makes the word come alive to us. And he teaches us what's already been revealed so that we come to an understanding. But this is not new knowledge. This is not before unknown as far as to the world. It's already known, just not to you, because he's illuminating it to you in the moment. This is an ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is the one that helps us to understand the word that's been revealed. With me so far? Paul is saying that I did not receive the gospel of Jesus from any man. It wasn't taught by any man. Because the false teachers were accusing him otherwise. Since the gospel that Paul was teaching didn't come from man, Paul has no earthly objective to please. Understand that. He's not trying to please any man that taught him the gospel. 
because it came directly from Jesus. So his motivation is an eternal one. And the same must go for the gospel today. The gospel is about Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. He goes on to defend this with a testimony. And we see this testimony unfold in verses 13 to 24. Um, Read along. It says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Let's stop there for a minute. The thing we have to realize is uh, that testimonies must point to Jesus. And Paul's doing that here. He's going to point to Jesus here very quickly. It's it's interesting that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm teaching students in a ministry studies program in the Alliance called the LEAD program, and this month's work for them, which is, we're in our second year already, but this month's work that they have to turn in is their testimony, which we, in the, uh, you know, we're calling their God story. And we teach it that it consists of three pieces or three components, generally speaking, So I'd like to share that with you because too often in my experience as a pastor and as a discipler, as a mentor, when I ask for somebody's testimony, it's it's usually a great story, but it has a lot of I, 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 I in it and not a whole lot of Jesus in it. We have to remind ourselves that all testimonies must testify to Jesus. So, Generally speaking, a, a testimony consists of three parts. We're going to unpack them in, in, in Paul's story here. Number one, the first part is what my life was like before Jesus. For me, that's true. I was not a believer until I was 18. So I had 18 years worth of life before Jesus. So my, my testimony begins there, with that life before Jesus. Now, some of us in here don't remember what was like, life was like before Jesus because maybe Jesus was introduced to you in VBS or Sunday school when you were a little tiny kid. I get it. But there was some point in your life where you understood the gospel more clearly and you made a decision in that moment. What was life like before that? That would be part one. Part two, then, is the conversion or the surrender moment. What was happening? What happened in that moment? That made you say yes to Jesus? What did that look like? Whether, you know, whether it was like me where I didn't know the Lord for 18 years and there was a defining moment where I had a surrender moment to the Lord and that would be my conversion moment, or if you were a little child when you, you know, first were saved and it wasn't until you were a teenager, there was something that happened that led you to recommitting your life to Jesus. That's point number two. Point number three, then, is what has Jesus done since? Since that surrender moment, how has he changed your life? What has he done? Because whenever Jesus encounters someone, they are changed. He does a new thing. We're born again into something new. We don't stay the same. So Jesus has done something in your life since. And usually, especially if it's the the first half of those slashes, The first part, point one, the life before Jesus, 
is generally what he's changing in number three. So you can kind of tie those pieces of the story together. Paul starts out with his testimony, and he says, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. We actually can find this uh, history in the book of Acts. So I'm, I'm, every, every claim that he makes in his testimony here in Galatians, I'm also giving you the reference in the book of Acts where you can go and actually read the history of this taking place. So in Acts 8 to 9, you actually see this truth that Paul is claiming in his testimony where he was persecuting the church. This word persecute literally means to run swiftly in order to catch a person. It means to pursue in a hostile manner, literally, quite literally, to hunt down. So when Paul says he was persecuting the church, he literally was hunting Christians down. And those who wouldn't go quietly and wouldn't go peacefully were often murdered. Like going door to door and asking if they were part of the way. And if they said, yes, I'm part of the way, Jesus is the way, right? He would say, you either need to recant of that and give your life back to Yahweh and come back to synagogue or else, you know, we're going to jail you. And if they didn't go peacefully, they often were beaten, even possibly murdered by Paul. So it literally means to be hunted down. And he says, you know that my life before, how I persecuted the church of God violently. I tried to destroy the church. That literally means lay waste to. So when he says he was trying to destroy, he, he was trying to obliterate it, lay it to waste. He goes on and he says that I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my age. Extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father, uh, fathers. Zealous word here means eagerly desiring to defend or uphold a thing, vehemently contending for a thing. This is what he means by zealous. So zealous, so eager to defend or uphold Judaism. But notice what he says he was zealous for. Extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Not for Yahweh, not for the temple, not for, you know, God Almighty. So zealous was I for the traditions handed down from ancestry, which is that, what that phrase would literally mean, handed down to me from my fathers. I think this is another good point to make here that Paul brings out, that we must always be vigilant to make sure that who we worship is God alone and not the traditions passed down to us from our forefathers. Our worship is of God alone, not the traditions. Traditions aren't wrong, but we must never become more zealous for our traditions than we are for the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because when our traditions become more precious to us than Jesus himself, we've created an idol in our heart. 
Paul, in his testimony, he said, I had this idol, I had these traditions of my fathers that I was zealous for, that I couldn't even see what God was doing. Verses 15 to 17 is recorded in Acts 9. He says uh, here in 15, he says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, it did not immediately consult with anyone. The he here is God the Father. Okay? So when we read this, we have to understand that it's God the Father who had set him apart before he was born. God the Father called Paul by his grace, by God's grace, and was pleased to reveal his son, Jesus, to Paul. Notice that he says that the Father set me apart before I was born, and he called me in his grace, revealing Jesus his son, which he previously made the claim was how he received the gospel was through Jesus. And he sent me to the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus. My friends, remember that we're not just saved from the penalty of our sins. Yes, that's true. We are saved from the penalty of our sins by the blood of Christ. We're not just saved from that. We are saved to a mission. Paul says very clearly here that the Father in his grace called me to himself in, with his Son and to the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus. We're not just saved. This goes back to week one where, where you know, we're, we're ripped off of this path and onto a new path. Well, that new path includes a mission to join Jesus with, the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them all that Christ has, has commanded. Right? So we're not just saved out of our sin and our penalty from our sin. We're saved to something far greater. Each one, each believer who's born again has a purpose in the kingdom of God. Each one of us. Each has a part to play. That's why also Paul in, in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, talks about the body of Christ as a body, like hands and feet and eyes and nose and ears, right? Like each one has a functioning part to play. There is no such thing as an idle Christian because we've been called out from our sin to a mission. He continues with his testimony here in verses 18 to 24. He says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Caiaphas, which that is Peter, by the way. Um, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. 
Notice that it's been three years since, since his conversion on the road to Damascus where he's been ministering to the Gentiles with this gospel that he received directly from Jesus before he even goes to the apostles. He's making the claim and he's backing the claim that the gospel that he received and that he's preaching came from Jesus Christ alone. My friends, this is important to understand because the context was these Judaizers coming in and trying to trash his name, trash his gospel, and trying to say that it's not really the gospel. You can't trust Paul. So in his testimony, he's coming in, and he's making it very, very clear by defending the faith and defending the statements with what took place in his life. Paul defends his claim with the details of his life since conversion, revealing that it was, in fact, from God himself. This is the power of a testimony. You realize in Paul's testimony here, we see a murderer hunting down human beings, claiming to be part of this way, and murdering them. And on his way to a new place, the Lord Jesus blinds him on the road to, to, to Damascus. And he says, who, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And in that moment, he surrenders. And he says, okay. And he goes to Damascus blinded. And you can read that story. Notice that Paul doesn't hold back any of that dirt in his testimony. He's forthright with it. He says, I used, to, I used to murder Christians, but look at me now in the power of Christ. Look at what Jesus has done to me. He's completely changed me. Notice how he finishes here. He says, the church in Judea who didn't know Paul, like if he would have showed up in person, they wouldn't have known him from Luke or anybody else for that matter. They didn't know him. They only heard of him. And he said that they were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. My friends, this is the power of a testimony. Unfortunately, many of us, when we are trying to share a testimony, we leave the power out. What do I mean? Well, we have to wrestle with the primary audience for our testimony. When we're sharing our testimony with people, who do we have in mind? Too often, we craft our testimony as believers with the wrong audience in mind. If the audience is the church or other Christians, we tend to focus on looking like good little Christians. And we tell a really great story. And we, and, we, and, we, and we focus on all the shiny things in our story. Leaving out all of the dirt. We keep, we keep that closet, the skeleton in the closet, kind of locked up tight. But when we do that, we actually strip our testimony of the power of the gospel. 
we have to realize that the purpose of our testimony is to testify to the lost the glory of Jesus and the power of the gospel. And so when we realize that the purpose of a testimony is to testify to the lost, then we must be willing to open that closet, skeleton and all, and bear it full so that they can see the power of Jesus to transform lives. But too often, we're afraid to do so. We're afraid or ashamed of the person we once were. But my friends, it's, it's, it's literally sharing the dirt and the, the sinful man that we once were with a lost world that actually makes them go, wait, you know what it's like to be addicted to pornography? You know what it's like to be an alcoholic? You know what it's like to have same-sex attraction? You know what it's like to feel like you're the opposite sex? Whatever the case might be. You mean to tell me that the answer you found was Jesus? Man, I might want to look into that. There's power in the gospel of Jesus, but we have to make our testimonies in a way that allows us to be vulnerable to a lost world. What can they do to us? Nothing. We have to get comfortable among the body of Christ to share our testimonies this way. Because here's the truth. God uses his story in your life to reach lost people for his kingdom. All so that Jesus gains the glory. We must become a people who are secure and knowing that Jesus is our Lord and Savior and what he's taken us out of, he gains the glory. And we must be willing to share the truth. It's the authentic, transparent truth of who we once were, a sinner like them, that reveals the gospel as good news. Otherwise, it's not good news to them. They can't receive it that way. It looks unattainable. We come off as holier than thou. We must be willing to be authentic and transparent with what God has taken us through and taken us out of and to when we glorify Jesus as our Savior. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your Holy Spirit ministering to our hearts and souls and minds this morning. Lord, help us to become a people who are so secure in knowing that we are yours that when we share what you've done in our life, we don't feel a sense of shame, but rather we celebrate the change that you've made in our life. That we can recognize, yeah, I was hopeless. I was helpless. I was doomed and, and ready for the world to consume me. But Jesus, Jesus entered my life and changed everything. Lord, help us to be a people who boldly proclaim the good news that Jesus saves. But Lord, give us boldness and confidence to not hold back the dirt and the authentic truth of who we once were so that our witness would be effective to a lost and dying world all around us. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning who 
from this place will leave and go home and you know, to the workplace this week. Lord, I pray that you would send them, that you would send them with the good news, that you would embolden them by your spirit to be willing to be used by you, to not be ashamed of the gospel in their life, and that we would see the lost in our community saved in the name of Jesus. And all who agree, say, amen. Amen. God bless.